0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care, you can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Alabama And I'm Joe Newton. Uh, Joe, I was inspired by our conversation with Dr. Julian Ebo, and I thought we should do a follow-up Uh, A few years ago, I I was working for this hospice in Chicago. And one night I was on call. I think it was a Monday night, but I went to play soccer. Ah. So around 8 p.m., the nurse called me. Uh, It wasn't an emergency, but to just update me about a patient. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking, she noticed there was some background noise. She said, what are you up to? I said, "I'm, I'm at the soccer field. I'm playing soccer. And she was shocked. She says, do you have a life from work? (laughs) I said, yes. But even when you're on call, I said, yes, I cannot pause my life. My life has to go on. If I do get called, then I stop and I go. But life must continue because uh, there's power in in social life, just like we had uh, from Dr. Ebo, you know, the power of community.
2: You've got to continue that in your life because the support and the, uh, the release that it gives you to be with that group of people uh, is so significant as far as for healing and uh, yeah. any kind of uh, you know, emotional support.
1: I think many people in the helping profession, we get so consumed with our work and we forget that there should actually be life. After work that nourishes us to be able to wake up in the morning to go and do what we do.
2: And do it again and again and again.
1: So uh, I like the TED Talk uh, by Dr. Susan Pinker, and I would love for us to listen to it and then talk about
3: it. Okay. Here's an intriguing fact. In the developed world, everywhere, women live an average of six to eight years longer than men do. Six to eight years longer. That's like a huge gap. In 2015, The Lancet published an article showing that men in rich countries are twice as likely to die as women are at any age. But there is one place in the world where men live as long as women. It's a remote mountainous zone, a blue zone, where super longevity is common to both sexes. This is the Blue Zone in Sardinia, an Italian island in the Mediterranean between Corsica and uh, Tunisia, where there are six times as many centenarians as on the Italian mainland, less than 200 miles away. There are 10 times as many centenarians as there are in North America. It's the only place where men live as long as women. But why? My curiosity was piqued. I decided to research the science and the habits of the place. And I started with the genetic profile. I discovered, soon enough, that genes account for just 25% of their longevity. The other 75% is lifestyle. So what does it take to live 100 or beyond? What are they doing right? What you're looking at is an aerial view of Villa Grande. It's a village at the epicenter of the blue zone uh, where I went to investigate this. And as you can see, architectural beauty is not its main virtue. Density is. Tightly spaced houses, interwoven alleys and streets. It means that the villagers' lives constantly intersect. And as I walked through the village, I could feel hundreds of pairs of eyes watching me from behind doorways and curtains, from behind shutters. Because like all ancient villages, Villa Grande couldn't have survived without this structure, without its walls, without its cathedral, without its village square, because defense and social cohesion defined its design. Urban priorities changed as we moved towards the Industrial Revolution because infectious disease became the risk of the day. But what about now? Now, social isolation is the public health risk of our time. Now, a third of the population says they have two or fewer people to lean on. But let's go to Villa Grande now as a contrast to meet some centenarians. Meet Giuseppe Moreno, he's 102, a super centenarian and a lifelong resident of the village of Villa Grande. He was a gregarious man. He loved to recount stories such as how he lived like a bird from what he could find on the forest floor during not one, but two world wars. How he and his wife, who also lived past 100, raised six children in a small homey kitchen where I interviewed him. Here he is with his sons, Angelo and Domenico, both in their 70s and looking after their father, and who were, quite frankly, very suspicious of me and my daughter who came along with me on this research trip, because the flip side of social cohesion is a wariness of strangers and outsiders. But Zio Giuseppe, he wasn't, he wasn't suspicious at all. He was a happy-go-lucky guy, very um, outgoing with a positive outlook, And I wondered, so is that what it takes to live to be 100 or beyond, thinking positively? Actually, no. (laughs) Meet Giovanni Corrias. He's 101, the grumpiest person I have ever met. (laughs) And he put a lie to the notion that you have to be positive to live a long life. And there is evidence for this. When I asked him why he lived so long, he kind of looked at me under hooded eyelids and he growled, nobody has to know my secrets. (laughs) But despite being a sourpuss, the niece who lived with him and looked after him called him il tesoro, my treasure. And she respected him and loved him. And she told me when I questioned this obvious loss of her freedom... You just don't understand, do you? Looking after this man is a pleasure. It's a huge privilege for me. This is my heritage. And indeed, wherever I went to interview these centenarians, I found a kitchen party. Here's Giovanni with his two nieces, Maria, above him and beside him, his great niece, Sarah, who came when I was there to bring fresh fruits and vegetables. And I quickly discovered by being there that in the blue zone, as people age, and indeed across their lifespans, they're always surrounded by extended family, by friends, by neighbors, the priest, the barkeeper, the grocer, people are always there or dropping by. They are never left to live solitary lives. This is unlike the rest of the developed world, whereas George Burns quipped, happiness is having a large, loving, caring family in another city. Now, so far, we've only met men, long-living men, but I met women, too. And here you see Zia Teresa. She, at over 100, taught me how to make the local specialty, which is called coularjonis, which are these large pasta pockets, like ravioli about this size, this size. And they're filled with high-fat ricotta and mint and drenched in tomato sauce. And she showed me how to make just the right crimp so they wouldn't open. And she makes them with her daughters every Sunday and distributes them by the dozens to neighbors and friends. And that's when I discovered a low-fat, gluten-free diet is not what it takes to live to 100 in the blue zone. (laughs) (laughs) Now, these centenarian stories, along with the science that underpins them, prompted me to ask myself some questions too, such as, when am I going to die, and how can I put that day off? And as you will see, the answer is not what we expect. Julianne holt Lundstedt is a researcher at Brigham Young University, and she addressed this very question in a series of studies of tens of thousands of middle-aged people, much like this audience here. And she looked at every aspect of their lifestyle, their diet, their exercise, their marital status, how often they went to the doctor, whether they smoked or drank, et cetera. She recorded all of this, And then she and her colleagues sat tight and waited for seven years to see who would still be breathing. And of the people left standing, what reduced their chances of dying the most? That was her question. So let's now look at her data in summary, going from the least powerful predictor to the strongest. Okay. so clean air, which is great. It doesn't predict how long you will live. Whether you have your hypertension treated is good, still not a strong predictor. Whether you're lean or overweight, you can stop feeling guilty about this because it's only in third place. How much exercise you get is next, still only a moderate predictor. Whether you've had a cardiac event and you're in rehab and exercising, getting higher now. Whether you've had a flu vaccine, did anybody here know that having a flu vaccine protects you more than doing exercise? whether you were drinking and quit or whether you're a moderate drinker, whether you don't smoke or if you did, whether you quit. And getting towards the top predictors are two features of your social life. First, your close relationships. These are the people that you can call on for a loan if you need money suddenly, who will call the doctor if you're not feeling well or who will take you to the hospital or who will sit with you if you're having an ex- existential crisis, if you're in despair. That, those people, that little clutch of people, are a strong predictor, if you have them, of how long you'll live. And then something that surprised me, something that's called social integration. This means how much you interact with people as you move through your day. How many people do you talk to? And these mean both your weak and your strong bonds, So not just the people you're really close to who mean a lot to you, but like, do you talk to the guy who every day makes you your coffee? Um, Do you talk to the postman? Do you talk to the woman who walks by your house every day with her dog? Do you play bridge or poker or have a book club? Those interactions are one of the strongest predictors of how long you live. Now, this leads me to the next question. If we now spend more time online than on any other activity including sleeping. We're now up to 11 hours a day, one hour more than last year, by the way. Does it make a difference? Why distinguish between interacting in person and interacting via social media? Is it the same thing as being there if you're in contact constantly with your kids through text, for example? Well, the short answer to the question is no, it's not the same thing. Face-to-face contact releases a whole cascade of neurotransmitters. And like a vaccine, they protect you now in the present and well into the future. So simply making eye contact with somebody, shaking hands, giving somebody a high five is enough to release oxytocin, which increases your level of trust, and it lowers your cortisol levels. So it lowers your stress. And dopamine is generated, which gives us a little high, and it kills pain. It's like a a naturally produced morphine. Now, all of this passes under our conscious radar, which is why we conflate online activity with the real thing. But we do have evidence now, fresh evidence, that there is a difference. So let's look at some of the neuroscience. Elizabeth Redke, a neuroscientist at the University of Maryland, tried to map the difference between what goes on in our brains when we interact in person, versus when we're watching something that's static. And what she did is she compared the brain function of two groups of people, those interacting live with her or with one of her research associates in a dynamic conversation. And she compared that to the brain activity of people who were watching her talk about the same subject, but in a canned video, like on YouTube. So, and by the way, if you want to know how she fit two people in an MRI scanner at the same time, talk to me later. So, what's the difference? This is your brain on real social interaction. What you're seeing is the difference in brain activity between interacting in person and taking in static content. In orange, you see the brain areas that are associated with attention Social intelligence, that means anticipating what somebody else is thinking and feeling and planning, and emotional reward. And these areas become much more engaged when we're interacting with a live partner. Now, these richer brain signatures might be why recruiters from Fortune 500 companies evaluating candidates thought that the candidates were smarter when they heard their voices compared to when they just read their pitches in a text, for example, or an email or a letter. Now, our voices and body language convey a rich signal. It shows that we're thinking, feeling, sentient human beings who are much more than an algorithm. Now, this research by Nicholas Epley at the University of Chicago Business School is quite amazing because it tells us a simple thing. If somebody hears your voice, they think you're smarter. I mean, that's quite a simple thing. Now, to return to the beginning, why do women live longer than men? And one major reason is that women are more likely to prioritize and groom their face-to-face relationships over their lifespans. Fresh evidence shows that these in-person friendships create a biological force field against disease and decline. And it's not just true of humans, but their primate relations are primate relations as well. Anthropologist Joan Silk's work shows that female baboons who have a core of female friends, show lower levels of stress via their cortisol levels, they live longer, and they have more surviving offspring. At least three stable relationships, that was the magic number. Think about it. I hope you guys have three. The power of such face-to-face contact is really why there are the lowest rates of dementia among people who are socially engaged. It's why women who have breast cancer are four times more likely to survive their disease than loners are. Why men who've had a stroke, who meet regularly to play poker or to have coffee or to play old-timers hockey, I'm Canadian after all, um, are better protected by that social contact than they are by medication. Why men who've had a stroke, who meet regularly, this is something very powerful they can do. This face-to-face contact provides stunning benefits, yet now almost a quarter of the population says they have no one to talk to. We can do something about this. Like Sardinian villagers, it's a biological imperative to know we belong, and not just the women among us. Building in-person interaction into our cities, into our workplaces, into our agendas bolsters the immune system, sends feel-good hormones surging through the bloodstream and brain, and helps us live longer. I call this building your village, and building it and sustaining it is a matter of life and death. Thank you.
1: That was Dr. Susan Pinker, and she wrote a fantastic book called The Village Effect. If you have a chance, you can get it. And we'll make this video available on our website. But Joe, what do you think?
2: Oh, I'm just uh, a wonderful presentation, number one. Number two is that um, I start thinking about my own need for having that interaction with people mm. and what I do on a daily basis and how it is that I get to do this. And I'm thinking, uh, I, hope it, I hope I'm hope i doing the right thing. But then I, I, I and my mom is... My mother is 97 years old, and she has always, always been involved in activities, belonging. She's quite the talker, and she is everything that this doctor talked about as far as how one lives a a longer life. Mm. Not that it's always, you know, the, the best thing in the world, but it... She's led a led a very, very vibrant life and still continues to do so. And you know, I see that the real part of that is because she's in a facility that uh she's in independent living yet, and she gets all the interaction. She gets to see everybody now again. Mm-hmm. You know, during COVID, that was difficult for her. Yeah. And now it's uh you can see her being, you know, her her eyes sparkling again and getting out there and and all that kind of good things that that uh that this that this presentation showed i mean it's a very positive thing and it's a very real thing
1: it is because people people in helping professions always like to get busy helping other people and we forget the power of socialization and building a community that nourishes us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, we live in a culture where people can have like thousands of friends on Facebook. But Dr. Susan says face-to-face communications are actually more oh. vital and more helpful.
2: I've, I've thought that all along, Saul. So, you know, we've, we've been doing our team meetings via Zoom and, you know, you, you sit at home and you just... Twiddle your thumbs, and you, you're really until you have something you need to say, and then it's hard sometimes even to break into that conversation. Uh, whereas if you're there in person, you're more in, you're more interactive at that point. You're you're there, yeah. And uh, so I think we need to get back to that, and and be intentional about getting to talk to people. I mean, you have to be intentional.
1: Just like doc, Dr. Eber said, we have to be intentional to be compassionate. Yep. And we have to be intentional to really connect with others because it helps us, especially as caregivers. It makes us mm-hmm. better caregivers. Because if you feel better, you do your job with joy, with happiness.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and you know as well as I do, Saul, that if you are, you've had interaction with people that, you know, they don't look you in the eye. Uh, you sometimes wonder if they're actually listening to you, and that's the difference between what we're we're seeing here. Uh, you know, I, I you know that that community in uh, in Italy there. I mean, that was. <laughs> I, I look at that place. And I'm like, do I really want to live there? <laughs> you know, it's too close to one another. But it has served a purpose for that community of people. Uh, I'd probably be the grumpy old man there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if <laughs> this is really a perfect follow-up to Doctor Ebos' uh, episode, because the compassion, the the foundation for social relationships, is actually compassion.
2: Yes, and the compassion is, and it's, and it has shown through those folks who have lived as long as they have there. What it is capable of doing to individuals. I mean, what is what is being done? I, I love the niece who said it was a privilege to take care of her uncle.
1: Hmm.
2: And I'm not so sure how. You know, I don't know if that's an ethnic thing or if it's a. Uh, it's just the 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 power that's within the compassion, the compassion within. Yes. Within the person to say that it is such, but I mean, it was uh, uh, it was very very interesting to hear that lady. I mean, see her words. Yeah,
1: with that, we'll take a little break, and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness helpline. It is a free, nationwide peer support service providing information resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at I'm
1: Bem and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I think uh, this topic we are addressing today of you know, community, social relationships, because like we said, in hospice, social isolation is one of the biggest issues, especially for us in the psychosocial team that we deal with. But also generally in community, you know, people are becoming more and more isolated.
2: Well, I see the the, the problem that we have with that social iso- isolation is that, you know, families are s- spread all over the country. Uh, Sometimes they're not aware of the situation to its entirety because for whatever the reason that somebody wants to protect them from feeling the, uh, the, the, the amount of emotions that goes with when you find out that your loved one is dying. Mm. Uh, but I couldn't agree more that the idea that we need to be compassionately together uh, when we start this journey of end of life, it's paramount. It really is so important.
1: Yeah. So to, ha- to highlight that point, that quality relationships are ro- really important, let's watch this TED Talk by Dr. Robert Wildinger.
0: What keeps us healthy and happy as we go through life? If you were going to invest now in your future best self, where would you put your time and your energy? There was a recent survey of millennials asking them, what their most important life goals were. And over 80% said that a major life goal for them was to get rich. And another 50% of those same young adults said that another major life goal was to become famous. (laughs) And we're constantly told to lean in to work, to push harder (laughs) and achieve more. We're given the impression that these are the things that we need to go after in order to have a good life. Pictures of entire lives, of the choices that people make and how those choices work out for them, those pictures are almost impossible to get. Most of what we know about human life, we know from asking people to remember the past. And as we know, hindsight is anything but twenty twenty. We forget vast amounts of what happens to us in life. And sometimes memory is downright creative. But what if we could watch entire lives as they unfold through time? What if we could study people from the time that they were teenagers all the way into old age to see what really keeps people happy and healthy? We did that. The Harvard study of adult development may be the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. For 75 years, we've tracked the lives of 724 men. Year after year, asking about their work, their home lives, their health, and of course asking all along the way without knowing how their life stories were going to turn out. Studies like this are exceedingly rare. Almost all projects of this kind fall apart within a decade because too many people drop out of the study or funding for the research dries up or the researchers get distracted or they die and nobody moves the ball further down the field. But through a combination of luck and the persistence of several generations of researchers, this study has survived. About 60 of our original 724 men are still alive, still participating in the study, most of them in their 90s. And we are now beginning to study the more than 2,000 children of these men. And I'm the fourth director of the study. (laughs) Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men. The first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we have followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. When they entered the study, all of these teenagers were interviewed, they were given medical exams. We went to their homes and we interviewed their parents. And then these teenagers grew up into adults who entered all walks of life. They became factory workers and lawyers and bricklayers and doctors. One president of the United States... Some developed alcoholism, a few developed schizophrenia, some climbed the social ladder from the bottom all the way to the very top, and some made that journey in the opposite direction. The founders of this study would never, in their wildest dreams, have imagined that I would be standing here today, 75 years later, telling you that the study still continues. Every two years, our patient and dedicated research staff calls up our men and asks them if we can send them yet one more set of questions about their lives. Many of the inner-city Boston men ask us, why do you keep wanting to study me? My life just isn't that interesting. The Harvard men never ask that question. (laughs) get the clearest picture of these lives, we don't just send them questionnaires. We interview them in their living rooms. We get their medical records from their doctors. We draw their blood. We scan their brains. We talk to their children. We videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. And when, about a decade ago, we finally asked the wives if they would join us as members of the study, many of the women said, you know, it's about time. (laughs) So what have we learned? What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier period. We've learned three big lessons about relationships. The first is that social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills. It turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community are happier, they're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well-connected. And the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. And the sad fact is that at any given time, more than one in five Americans will report that they're lonely. And we know that you can be lonely in a crowd and you can be lonely in a marriage. So the second big lesson that we learned is that it's not just the number of friends you have and it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship, but it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. It turns out that living in the midst of conflict is really bad for our health. High-conflict marriages, for example, without much affection turn out to be very bad for our health, perhaps worse than getting divorced. And living in the midst of good, warm relationships is protective. Once we had followed our men all the way into their 80s, we wanted to look back at them at midlife and to see if we could predict who was going to grow into a happy, healthy octogenarian and who wasn't. And when we gathered together, everything we knew about them at age 50... It wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. And good, close relationships seem to buffer us from some of the slings and arrows of getting old. Our most happily partnered men and women Reported in their 80s that on the days when they had more physical pain, their moods stayed just as happy. But the people who were in unhappy relationships, on the days when they reported more physical pain, it was magnified by more emotional pain. And the third big lesson that we learn about relationships and our health is that good relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. It turns out That being in a securely attached relationship to another person in your 80s is protective. That the people who are in relationships where they really feel they can count on the other person in times of need, those people's memories stay sharper longer. And the people in relationships where they feel they really can't count on the other one, those are the people who experience earlier memory decline. And those good relationships, they don't have to be smooth all the time. Some of our octogenarian couples could bicker with each other day in and day out. But as long as they felt that they could really count on the other when the going got tough, those arguments didn't take a toll on their memories. So, this message that good, close relationships are good for our health and well-being... This is wisdom that's as old as the hills. Why is this so hard to get and so easy to ignore? Well, we're human. What we'd really like is a quick fix, something we can get that'll make our lives good and keep them that way. Relationships are messy and they're complicated and the the hard work of tending to family and friends, that's not sexy or glamorous. It's also lifelong. It never ends. The people in our 75-year study who were the happiest in retirement were the people who had actively worked to replace workmates with new playmates. Just like the millennials in that recent survey, many of our men, when they were starting out as young adults, really believed that fame and wealth and high achievement were what they needed to go after to have a good life. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. So what about you? Let's say you're 25 or you're 40 or you're 60. What might leaning into relationships even look like? Well, the possibilities are practically endless, It might be something as simple as replacing screen time with people time or livening up a stale relationship by doing something new together, long walks or date nights, or reaching out to that family member who you haven't spoken to in years because those all-too-common family feuds take a terrible toll on the people who hold the grudges. I'd like to close with a quote from Mark Twain. More than a century ago, he was looking back on his life, and he wrote this. There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account. There is only time for loving, and but an instant, so to speak, for that. The good life is built with good relationships. Thank you. Gosh.
2: I would love to heard more about the study. You know, I know it's only a brief little yeah. thing that we got there. But such a, a, an impact it made on me, as, of course, I'm older. Uh, I don't know if the millennials would have even heard it.
1: You know, we take for granted the power of relationships. And... um they really mean so much. They're really powerful. And, and I, 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 you know, we are doing this series to remind us to pause
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we are always doing, doing, doing. And in most cases we, are, <laughs> we go through compassionate fatigue and we get burned out and all that. And what nourishes us in most cases is more screen time, more movies, more. Oh, we, think that's what that,
2: we think that's what it is.
1: We think that that is what it is. But here, you know, from this series, we are seeing the power of connection. Social relationships are so much more than just hearing people's voices, it is deeply connecting with people. And it's powerful,
2: exceptionally powerful because it, it does, it makes you, pardon me, more healthy. And aware of what's you know it, it there's so many things that that go on in life that keeps us from these relationships and and we need to be pretty concerted of making that happen. I mean we have to be determined to make that it will happen because it's there's too often times that we just say, well, you know, well, I'll just you know, I'll just go home and like you say, get back on the on the screen." And, you know, I I'm, I'm, I seem to be comfortable there. I don't have to deal with, you know, drama. I don't have to deal with pain and sorrow. Uh, it's just that you're alone. And yeah. that's not part of humanity that we, or part of being human, I guess, yeah. that we need to encourage.
1: And this is terrible. I remember uh, about 2007, seven eight. I was in hospice. Uh, and I was, uh, I would go on work then I would come back home and turn on the Wii, the video game, and play for another four or five hours. Yep. And um, in the process, when you do that, you neglect the people around you, uh, forgetting that actually it is those relationships around you that nourish you than all this screen time. And I want this to sink in because in most cases, uh, we, are, we are all about doing and uh, let us... Try to build meaningful relationships because the best way to direct your energy towards a meaningful life is through compassion, love, mm-hmm. laughter, and friendship
2: absolutely right I mean you to you know you, you, to hear your story about how it is that you would jump right into a game uh, you know you're hurting yourself and you don't even know it,
1: yeah. You're thinking you're having fun. You think you're having fun. But you're becoming more and more isolated.
2: That's right. And, uh, you know, I I look at my grandchildren and how they get into their games and they might be on a game where they're playing with someone who's in another home and they think that that's being interactive, but it really isn't. You have to be in, at least there has to be that in-person connection, I think, that is very important. And you know, you and I've seen it in a lot of facilities that we've been in where we have people who are bedbound and, you know, they might have some dementia or they might have some other kind of disease progression and you're just watching them decline. I mean, it, it is a, it's a, a visible decline when there is nobody there versus those who have people come by and spend time with them. I mean, it's yeah. obvious yeah. how much that counts. Yeah.
1: So it's powerful. What are your final thoughts?
2: My final thoughts, oh goodness, Saul. We need to we need to be dedicated and determined to be willing to share ourselves with those folks that we work with, as any hospice chaplain would, but with compassion. I mean, and to allow you know, it's not always easy when someone's not really that approachable or they're unkind or whatever it may be, but that is in itself going in there and just saying, you know, I'm here for you. Uh, get out of here. No, mm. uh, I am here for you. And do it with a great sense of, of love that we need to share.
1: Amen. Be compassionate. That's it. And be kind. Thank you for listening.
2: This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.